I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Visit Wales are proud to sponsor the RHS Gardening Podcast. To find out more about Wales' beautiful and historic gardens, go to visitwales.com slash gardens. Hello and welcome back to the RHS Gardening Podcast, sponsored by Visit Wales. Every fortnight, we bring you a mixture of features and discussions, exploring every aspect of gardening. Plant care, garden design, pest control, container ideas, growing your own fruit and vegetables, plus expert seasonal advice on what you should be doing in your garden right now. I'm Jenny Bowden, one of the team of horticultural advisors based at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Coming up in this edition, garden design for small spaces... Expert seasonal advice from RHS experts and the latest news on events across our four RHS gardens. Now, regular listeners know that members of the advisory team join us once a month to answer your gardening questions. The RHS advisory service is free for all RHS members and if you have any questions you'd like to hear answered on the podcast, you can email them to us at podcast at rhs.org.uk. Let's join my colleagues to hear advice on some of your seasonal questions. Hello, my name is Tony Dickerson, one of the horticultural advisors here at RHS Wisley here in Surrey. I'm Jenny Bowden. I'm one of the horticultural advisors here at RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Hello, I'm Lee Hunt. I'm the principal horticultural advisor here at RHS Garden Wisley. Hello, I'm Jeff Denton. I'm one of the plant pathologists here and based at Wisley Gardens. Our first question today is from Val Parks from Hampshire. My lawn is totally waterlogged. What can I do to help it recover? Well, Jenny, lawns at this time of year. Oh, it's been an absolutely horrendous winter and uh, the rain seems to be incessant. Um, the, main, the main tip really is obviously to, to keep off until the water subsides and then you can uh, move in and see what the damage has been. The, 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 main, the main piece of advice is to, is to spike it uh, regularly here, here at Wisley. Um, we have many areas which have been underwater for quite long periods of time and they also get a lot of use during the summer season as well once it's dried out and they're spiked they're spiked regularly and um, they you, you can either spike using using um, tines that make little holes or you can actually make small slices in in the um, 
in the ground and you can actually hire machinery that does this that's probably going to be the key to it um, you can jump up and down on your garden fork and move it uh, along but it could be dangerous and it's very tiresome and you need to go down a fair distance as well and if your ground is um it's hard uh, as the season goes on. Um, that can be a, an incredible job. If you can, you can hire machinery from a local hire shop and make the job a whole lot easier. Um, you can do hollow tining, which is where a plug is actually taken out of the ground. That's normally done a bit later in the year. And then you can actually get sand down into those holes to help with the drainage in the future. So at Wisley, we, we do do it more than once a year because we have um, a lot of wear on certain on many areas of the garden. Uh, and that will that will help prevent the damage in the future. Um, you may need to reseed where the where the ground is actually where the ground can't support the grass anymore. Um, in which case you would be uh, waiting till till the rain is uh, held off for a considerable amount of time. And then the idea is to use you can buy overseeding packs where you can just. Uh, top it up and hopefully match match the grass that's been there already that's that's one of the problems so you may prefer to actually turf so that you can match up with what grass still remains one of the things you can also try is if it just looks very patchy and poor um, at the when you start to see it coming through and after all the spiking if it begins to grow and it still looks really weak, then consider applying a fertiliser as well because it'll instantly improve the colour, but it'll encourage also the grass to grow. And if it can start to what we call tiller or produce side shoots, it'll begin to knit together more and fill those patches anyway. Yeah, and then later on in the season, you'd, you'd have a, a, a fertiliser that's high in phosphorus, which is what actually helps encourage the roots. That would be for the autumn, wouldn't it? Yes. But basically, it's get all the, the groundwork done as soon as you can get onto it and then start the process of feeding and, and mowing as well, because mowing is part of that process that will start to encourage it to grow well. One, one tip that may be helpful is, especially if you're over a heavy clay soil, the chance of getting a decent lawn that won't waterlog, become full of moss is fairly remote. Good idea if you're starting afresh is to actually put a lawn down over what we call a sand bed, a four inch layer of sand, uh, having prepared the site in the usual way for a, a lawn. And with that layer of sand, if you then turf or seed into that, you'll find that your grass will have a decent uh, amount of free drainage beneath it. And if you play golf or you look at football on the TV or elsewhere, you'll notice professional playing surfaces these days rarely flood because they're always over a thick layer of sand as well as an awful lot of extensive drainage. Um, we have a letter from Lorna Downing. It says, I have a large, old and frankly lacklustre forsythia in my London garden. I've always disliked it. This year when it has flowered, I intend to replace it with a tree or shrub that will bring spring colour to my small patch. Can you suggest something to try? And by the way, an additional comment is no more yellow, please. Tony, do you have any suggestions? Well, can I say I, I share Lorna's uh, general uh, opinion of Forsythia. Uh, looks good for two weeks of the year and then extremely dull shrub for the rest. Although I don't share her uh, reluctance to go for more yellow. And my first choice would be something like Stachyuris praecox. Unfortunately, I don't think it has a common name. Fantastic fountain-shaped uh, shrub will grow in a bit of sun or a bit of shade. 
It has a lovely uh, arrangement of the, the branches and it has uh, racemes or strings of tiny, very pale yellow flowers. Let's call them pale green. And they're held down in, uh, I say, these racemes, these strings. And today there are several what we call cultivars, varieties, which have been selected. And one of them, magpie, uh, one of the very few variegated plants I think I could tolerate. But I think that would be something that would be a fantastic addition to uh, anyone's garden. Well, I'm going to stick up for the foresight here because really those couple of weeks that it does flower, that it does produce such a real show of yellow. And it's just at that sort of Easter period where it's been dull and it's been dark and it's been grim. So actually having all that cheerful yellow is worthwhile. And also I've noticed that suddenly it started turning up in florists and being sold as long stems. And even in interior design magazines, it seems to be that a shot of colour that they're putting with all those sort of greys that are very popular at the moment. So I think it's perhaps on the verge of a resurgence but having said that it's not what the lady wanted so um, I would suggest an Osmanthus delavei now unfortunately this is another one Osmanthus without a common name it's an evergreen and it has white flowers so very little to dislike here and also it comes with a wonderful scent so you get quite a neat evergreen bush through the summer months and then these little white scented blooms throughout the spring Jenny, I bet you've got some other more colourful. Yeah, I'm going to answer the question as well. And I'm going to go along with the the non-yellow request. Um, I would choose uh, possibly a Viburnum aurora, um, which is a scented one. White, pinkish buds opening to white flowers uh, around two metres tall. Uh, It does lose its leaves in the winter, but incredible perfume and if you wanted an evergreen shrub then you might go for viburnum book woody eye um i agree with yours manthus there's a cultivar called uh, gulf tide um which is highly scented as well and of course evergreen if you don't mind uh, your shrub being deciduous and losing its leaves in the winter you might go for a wigila a little bit later in the spring but uh, it just just gets in there on the uh on the discre- on on the spring um, remit, as it were, and um, another one you might choose is choicier, something that Aztec pearl is a little bit more unusual than your than the usual choicier you see. It's got more finely divided leaves and a long flowering period, and it actually repeat repeat flowers a bit later in the season if you don't prune it. Um, the Wigila, a very nice uh, cultivar, is called Bristol Ruby which is a, uh, as its name suggests. Um, and you still have at this, at that time of year, the possibility of camellias if your soil is the right, um, the right acidity. Uh, so if it's not, then of course you can grow them in containers. If you would like a tree, that's a little more difficult because if it's replacing a forsythia, then it won't be a very big tree. Um, and there aren't really that many trees that reach a couple of metres or so. So you might consider um, something that's been trained with a clear stem, something like a Viburnum tinus, Laurestinus, um, which you can buy ready, ready prepared, as it were. So it's a little bit more of a topiary specimen. But you've got a clear stem and then you've got the canopy coming up above at whatever point, maybe 
maybe um, uh, five, five foot up, sometimes a little bit shorter. And then you can keep the top trimmed. You could use a, a fatinia is another possibility for that kind of plant where you've, you're very much in control. And then, of course, you can plant underneath it rather than having the shrubbiness from the base. So that's one way of having a having a tree-type shape in the garden, but not having it take up too much space um, at the lower levels. Uh, well, I think if we're going to be obliged to actually answer the question, I'd better suggest one or two other additions. Um, again, Osmanthus, one heterophyllus, uh, leaves almost holly-like, but rather softer. A couple of selections, purpureus, quite, as the name suggests, quite a dark shoot to it. And also Oreo marginata, another variegated plant, which again, I can generally tolerate. Uh, but something then uh, very spectacular, uh, rather like Forsythia in that it only lasts perhaps two or three weeks. Magnolia stellata, uh, listeners will be very familiar with it, star-like flowered magnolia, typically seen in white, but a rather better selection, I think, is Jane Platt, which is a nice rich pink, and I think that's very uplifting early in the year. I was just going to ask one extra thing, is that all these have a fantastic spring interest, but is spring the best time to be planting them, if you're replacing well, uh, generally evergreens, if you can get them in in March, possibly into April before the weather gets too dry, it's a good idea. Uh, often with deciduous uh, shrubs and trees, planting over the winter when they're dormant is ideal. But again, with container-grown stock, if you're getting them in early enough and paying particular attention to watering, it's the one thing people worry about feeding newly planted trees and shrubs, but it's watering once a week if the weather's dry put a bucket of water on them that's what uh, will mean they survive even severe heat wave. Simon Allsop's emailed from Paisley I'd like to start making my own compost how do I start I don't have a lot of space he says because he's actually asking can he do it on his balcony now um, listeners might not know but the hands of our compost profile on the website are actually belonging to Tony Dickerson so I have a suspicion we should ask you about this to begin with Tony. Well uh, indeed now well on a balcony I think uh, especially with uh, many people living in small flats and having balcony or limited garden space one option is um, a wormery where fresh vegetable matter, particularly from the kitchen, can be added bit by bit. You can actually buy kits from garden centres and mail order, and it's one way of actually producing compost in a very restricted site, often with just limited household uh, waste. So that's an option there. As for composting itself, I'm not sure a balcony would be my choice. So I say, if it's mainly kitchen waste, I'd certainly go for uh, composting using uh, a system uh, which uses branlins, tiny tiny worms which uh, uh, live on fresh vegetable matter and break it down. But if we're looking at composting in uh, lar- larger gardens and so on, then uh, what would we be considering there, Jenny? I, um, the most important thing is is to make your compost heap a reasonable size. A metre cubed is the minimum size, which is why... Um, composting on a balcony is probably going to take up most of the, the space on the balcony but you've got to get enough heat into the compost heap that that's the key and one meter cubed is about the minimum you're always going to get corners that are cooler um, and you're never going to kill all the weed seeds um, even in a meter cubed it's, it's doubtful it may be possible but it's doubtful so anything upwards of that size is going to be perfect 
and uh, you're really looking to put in about 50% um, uh, carbon-based um, material and 50% nitrogen-based, which is all the soft stuff, all your clippings, all the soft clippings from the garden and uh, lawn um, lawn clippings, etc. And then you balance that on your kitchen waste, and then you balance that with uh, prunings, preferably shredded and uh, dried up leaves, etc. But for the for the balcony, I think the wormery is a fantastic idea. Um, and there's two benefits: you've got the compost itself, uh, which you can use as a soil conditioner. You can use it in your containers as part of a compost mix. And you've also got a liquid fertilizer. You get compost tea, and it's it's a very a very good uh, it's it's a good good stuff. But you need to dilute it um, ten parts water to one part um, compost tea, and that can be used as as a multi-purpose fertilizer. I mean, the worms work best when the temperatures are a little bit higher, around uh, ten degrees, but not in high summer where it's above 30 so you want it in quite a sheltered spot the wormery um and they'll keep you well supplied um in in those temperatures with compost and compost tea we've got a question here from sophie thomas and she's in dorset and she says uh, i started my tomatoes off early this year to get an early crop uh, they're currently six inches tall and looking a bit on the poorly side what should she do with them now now what might have gone wrongly uh-huh. I think it is actually really, really tempting to get them sown too early because they're one of those things that um, wants nice, consistent, warm conditions, lots of light. So you're almost um, setting the stool against you before you've got started. And um, I do wonder whether they've just literally suffered from those conditions where there isn't enough light. So, for the time being, I think it's a case of just keeping a careful eye on them, trying to provide as much light as you can, keep turning them round and keep them moist but not soggy. They will catch up. But I think the the thing is, if they're not looking good in a few weeks' time, particularly by sort of early to mid-April, it's all is not lost here because you could just re-sow and they would grow more consistently and probably catch up pretty quickly so you you know it's one of those things that in these un these conditions that are not so ideal sometimes it's just better to wait yeah the the, the ideal it's it's easy to get them germinated you've got the warmth you've got a certain amount of light but then ideally tomatoes need to go into about oh, what 15 degrees um, and and no more um, and consistent light from from all all directions you know usually we're growing them on windowsills and although it seems bright it's just it's not it's not surround surround light and it's too cold to go into the greenhouse so so you're just left with this kind of in between time um, so re-sowing in mid-March right up into April is going to provide you with with a more smooth transition to to the greenhouse um, a little bit later on. The other thing is good quality compost to sow your seeds in as well, because uh, it, it's quite tricky getting it right. But we find often that the mixes these days are quite poor and they, the growth can be poor. So it might be worth, in this case, spending a little extra, getting some good compost and having another go. 
It's very tempting to uh, try and start things off as early as possible to get your crops growing and get them out there. But this problem of low light levels, and especially if you haven't got state-of-the-art facilities, which is the case for most of us, it pays to delay. And with things like, say, chilli peppers that need a very long uh, period for germination and then growing on, uh, often, unless you're wanting to produce on a very large scale, uh, garden centres often these days have a good selection. So for some of these things, aubergines, chilies, and so on, uh, you might actually find it's better to purchase a, a plant, grow that on, and then perhaps use your windowsill facilities for a whole range of things that, you know, from April and May onwards, will grow very well on a windowsill and get started. The RHS Advisory Team. Remember, RHS members can contact the team by phone, email or letter for free help with any gardening queries. If you'd like details on how you can become a member of the RHS, just go to rhs.org.uk forward slash join. I'm Jenny Bowden and you're listening to the RHS Gardening Podcast. Now, James Alexander Sinclair continues his series on garden design. In this podcast, he shares some suggestions of how to make the most of small spaces. Whatever the size of your outdoor space, be it an alley, gate garden, tiny courtyard, roof area or windowsill, with a little imagination, all can be turned into beautiful and enjoyable gardens. I am James Alexander Sinclair and I am a garden designer and writer. And I have come here today to talk to you about small spaces. This is one of the questions that all garden designers and the uh, people at the desks that the RHS shows and letters that get sent in and people on the radio and people in magazines and all this. And this is one of the questions that we get asked is, I've just moved into a really, really small garden. What can I do with it? Difficult question to answer without seeing because there are so many different sorts of small gardens. How small is small? If you were, for example, the Queen, a small garden is probably not exactly what you or I might think of as a small garden. It could be anything from a tiny weeny balcony on the 17th floor of a tower block. It could be a little roof space. It could be uh, a yard. I had a garden once that uh, basically was in a basement and you would walk out and it would be dark in the middle of the day. Uh, because there were buildings all, all, all the way around it, and, and this basement was, was dank and unpleasant. And you sort of look at it and you think, how can I possibly make a garden out of this? Uh, but you can. I didn't actually know how to do it when I did it, so we just shut the door on it and forgot about it. And, and the only sort of bit of gardening that we had is, is, is that when it rained really hard, then uh, the rain would come underneath the back door and bring with it various slugs, who, which previously had been, had been feeding on, on the few weeds that had been out there. And so the slugs would come in and eat the cat food. What can you do in spaces like that? Um, the answer is, is a lot of things, but there are a few things that you should not do. Should we start with the things that you should not do? If you have a very small lawn, small garden, then you should not have a lawn. If you have a very small garden, you should not have a lawn. This is very important because it just, it will never ever work. It's a small garden, you'll be walking on it all the time, the lawn will very quickly turn to mud, half of your garden will have to be taken up by a lawnmower to do it, then what do you do with the lawn clippings? You haven't got room for compost heaps or anything like that. You have to then put them in the bag and put them in the dustbin and because everything has to go in the right bin, which bin does it go? Is it going in the green bin or the brown bin or the blue bin or the black bin? You know, it, it just causes life to be complicated. So if you have 
a small area, basically the simplest thing to do is to pave it or to use artificial grass or do something just to get rid of it. That doesn't mean that you can't grow things in it, however. And there are endless different ways of being. The, the sort of classic standard thing to do, which we will all have seen in, in, in gardens on our travels, is, is that you go out of the back door and there is a, a flower bed that runs all the way around the perimeter. So it runs down those three sides and it can be narrow. That is one way to do it, and it sort of works reasonably well. But it doesn't have to be like that. You know, you can have a big bed at the back, you can have small beds at the sides. It depends entirely on whatever you feel. The thing about redesigning your garden is that you need to design it so it works with how you want to live. Mostly, with a small garden, it is a place for you to go out and just get a bit of fresh air. So you're going to want to put a table there, you're going to put a couple of chairs or something like that, and then you plant around the edges. If it is a concrete yard, uh, which it very often is, then the way to go is to uh, have containers. Containers uh, come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. You can either, you can have uh, conventional flower pots, which could be in terracotta or wood or metal or anything, or else you can build yourself some raised beds, which again is a very simple thing to do. Uh, and what you do with that is you basically build a wall. It can be a brick wall. It can be a wall made of railway sleepers. It can be timber. It can be anything you want. And then chuck some soil on the back of that and that basically makes a flower bed on top of the concrete just make sure that there are holes in the bottom of the wall so that the water can come out because if you build a watertight raised bed your plants will not be happy because very slowly hence the use of the word watertight the water will fill up and it will just basically become an enormous mud bath which is very useful for wrestling but not any good at all for growing plants so make sure that there are weep holes at the bottom of the wall it's probably quite a good idea to uh, consult a builder before you do such things if you have a, uh, a balcony uh, particularly if it's, it's high up if it's anything above the first or second floor it will be windy there will be wind coming at it, which means that, that you need to be careful. You need to be careful that you have nothing that's too high because it will blow over. Uh, you only have, have something that is not too sort of shaggy because then what will happen is that the wind will catch the end of the stems and the leaves will be torn to shreds. So you need to be careful what you plant if you're high up. So, so things with small leaves. So, so if it's a sunny balcony, you know, lavender, santalina, things like that will do really, really, really well. Because the other thing about wind is that it's very drying. Most people forget to water their plants every so often. It's a human failing. Uh, they also tend to go on holiday, which is another human failing. Uh, and their plants have to survive. So you have to think, okay, I live high up, it's windy and it's dry. What can I plant? that will survive that. And the way to deal with any sort of planting choices, you think, where does this plant come from? Where would it live in the wild? We come back down to ground level and the very smallest space that you can possibly get is people who don't have a back garden and all they have is basically a front doorstep. So you've got this sort of little tiny patch as you the way where you're waiting and thinking, oh my God, which pocket did I to put my keys in? And you're fumbling through and, and the shopping is sitting on the floor. And, you know, that, that sort of moment. There you probably only have room for one container. Make sure that that container has got something in it that will give you enormous pleasure. And my favourite plant for that situation is an evergreen shrub called a sarcococca. And sarcococca is one of those plants that have far too many seeds in it. 
Um, I'm not even going to bother to try and spell it for you, but sarcococca. So there are, there are a number of different sorts, but the two that you should think about are sarcococca confusa and sarcococca hookeriana. Um, so it's an evergreen shrub, so it's going to look quite nice all year round. But again, be adventurous, have fun, and do whatever you feel you want to do. Garden designer James Alexander Sinclair. A great place to find design and planting inspirations for your own garden is at an RHS garden. As an RHS member, you get free entry to all four RHS gardens, Harlow Carr in Yorkshire, Hyde Hall in Essex, Rosemore in Devon and RHS Garden Wisley in Surrey. Here are some current attractions and events to try out in coming weeks. Come to RHS Garden Hyde Hall on the 8th of March from 11am to 1pm for a workshop on what you should be doing in the garden during March and April. Let RHS experts guide you on topics such as staking, planting, lifting and dividing. Do you want to learn about pruning shrubs to create plants with excellent flowers or leaves? If so, come to RHS Garden Rosemore on the 14th of March from 11 till 12.30, where RHS Garden expert John Webster will be demonstrating great gardening tricks to turn an untamed jungle into an attractive oasis. Come to RHS Garden Wisley on the 17th of March from 9.30 till 4 for an exciting Plants for Bugs event by the RHS and Wildlife Gardening Forum. In the morning, see what the RHS have discovered in their four-year Plants for Bugs study. In the afternoon, have your say in a workshop event around further research in selecting plants for wildlife. Finish the day with a site tour of the Plants for Bugs trial plots. Details of all these events, as always, are on the website at rhs.org.uk forward slash gardens. For many gardeners, the arrival of March is the moment they shake off the winter sluggishness and start tackling those crucial spring jobs. So what should you be doing now? We asked experts and nursery people at the RHS London Plant and Design Show for some suggestions. Uh, Rosie Hardy from Hardy's Cottage Garden Plants up here at the halls. Uh, Everything's looking really good. And really at the moment, you know, things are just starting to perk up, come through. And you need to be looking at whether or not um, you've remembered to take things like the dead old leaves off certain things, especially your epimediums. This is key time. We're just getting warm weather. If you miss it by, you know, even a couple of days, if you don't slice off the old brown epimedium leaves now, in 10 days' time, new stuff will be coming up and it's really, really difficult to get that cleared away. And then you miss seeing the beauty of the fresh new leaves and the flowers coming through. Hi, it's Christine Skarmersdale from Broadley Gardens in Somerset. Spring's coming. It's really beginning to show that daffodils are coming out and I think perhaps it will finally dry up. I suggest that perhaps at the moment you go out and just enjoy what's there. You can't do much about things like daffodils, but your snowdrops, once they finish, you can start dividing those, split them up and start making new clumps down to small handfuls of five, spread them around and next year you'll have twice as many or three times as many. The other thing you can do similarly are your aconites. And then, of course, there's summer. You can start thinking about planning for summer. Hopefully we're going to get one eventually. Lilies for pots. There's lots of short lilies, perfect for pots with wonderful scent. Or you can put some of the taller ones like Regale into the garden. Or even add things like Gladiolus calianthus. I love to fill the good old Acidanthra and put it into the border where my tulips have finished flowering. So I've got late colour in August and September.
Hi, I'm Robbie. I'm the propagator at Craig Farm Plants in North Wales. Um, and something that I'm doing at the moment at Craig is I am sowing what's left of my seed for the year, um, basically so that I can catch any last frosts that we might have that will force that seed to come into growth once the weather gets a bit warmer. Um, with all of my seed, I keep it all in tubs outside um, and that cold stratification process basically brings it into life in the spring. So things that I'm planting at the moment are I'm doing the end of any sorbus that I've any sorbus seeds that I've got available, um, some linderers, um, but also starting to think about um, sowing geran hardy geranium seed and some other things like that, myanthemums, polygonatums, anything that I've just got left over from the winter that's held on to its fruit. The thing is about uh, a lot of hardy varieties of plants is that they come from regions of the world where the fruit uh, falls or is dispersed from the plant in the autumn and um, they have to see a period of cold to trigger the germination of the seeds um, and so the way that we grow our seeds at Craig Farm Plants is to make sure that everything sees that period of cold because of course the plants that we grow come from altitudes of 3,000 metres above sea level um, where they're going to see really really hard uh, winters. That's really why it's important to get them in now so that they you know anything that you haven't managed to get sown over at the beginning of the winter so that they do actually see some of that cold an alternative to putting them outside to see that cold is to put them in the fridge for six weeks once you've sown them you can find more gardening tips and guides to seasonal jobs in the garden on the rhs website rhs.org.uk forward slash gardening we're out of time on this edition of the RHS Gardening Podcast, sponsored by Visit Wales. We'll be back in a fortnight. Until then, remember to follow us on Twitter at the underscore RHS and like us on Facebook. For now, from me, Jenny Bowden, and the podcast team, goodbye. Walking down the path in my garden, and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today 
When paying by direct debit, prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.